Well, good morning. Again, take your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, or page 296 in the Bibles here. No one really likes to wait, right? In 2012, Timex, the the watch manufacturer, did a study on waiting and found that people wait an average of 15 minutes for a table at a restaurant. They wait an average of 20 minutes for their spouse to be ready to leave the house. There was no mention of which gender was waiting. I have no idea. People are willing to wait less than two minutes in a movie theater if people are talking around them before they say, keep it down. (laughs) We, We aren't really that patient, are we? Today we're going to talk about waiting on God. It's a it's a tough thing to think about. Waiting on God. And it could be that you're in a season where you have been waiting on some prayers you have prayed for a long, long time. Hurts and concerns that are still not resolved. Waiting on God. We see in the Old Testament Psalms a number of times. Psalm uh, 30, verse 20, I think it is, says, My soul waits on the Lord. Psalm 133 Our soul waits. I wait on the Lord. This this idea of our soul waiting points us to the inside because that's where the waiting on God really happens. A true spiritual test of do we trust God to have a good purpose? Do we trust Him? That's the idea of waiting. Well, in our study today, we see that in a terrible time for the people of Israel in the city of Samaria, they were forced into a desperate time. And God had a plan to deliver them. But the ungodly king, and particularly one of his officers, were not willing to wait on God. And we see the tragedy of not waiting. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Sometime later... Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. That was the capital city of the northern portion of Israel. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, Help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, If the lord doesn't help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? But then he asked her, What's the matter? She answered, This woman said to me, Give up your son so we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hid him. We can't imagine such desperate, extreme times. Some 
resorted to cannibalism. Back in verse 24, we meet Ben-Hadad. This is probably who the historians call Ben-Hadad too, because this name was essentially a title that got passed on to each generation. It's probably the son of Ben-Hadad, who you would have met in 1 Kings 20 during the reign of King Ahab of Israel. So the king in, in our event that we study today is probably the king named Joram, the son of Ahab and Jezebel, second son. It says that the entire army was mobilized of Aram. That was their neighbor to the north, if you were with us last week. And they're going to they're going to try again. In our study last week, we saw that uh, the, the nation of Aram had sent raiding parties against Israel, and, and God had uh, squelched that when uh, one time the army came in to surround a different city, Dothan, and uh, God put blindness upon, upon the entire army, and Elisha was able to feed them and send them home. Well, this says it's, it's sometime later where they try again. This time they mobilize the whole army, full-out invasion, and they strike at the capital city of Samaria, much like Russia's doing in Ukraine. The result was a siege. And in a siege, if you, can, if you can hold on long enough as the invading army, you can completely cut off the supply of food and force them to surrender. That was the idea. And now food was astronomically inflated. A donkey's head went for 80 shekels of silver, we don't exactly know uh, wages in the Old Testament, but uh, it looked like several months' worth of work to buy a donkey's head. And donkey's head, first of all, I don't know how they taste, but secondly, the Levitical law in the Old Testament had said you shouldn't even eat them. They were unclean foods, but in desperate times, that's what it was going for. The, the second uh, price point, it says, was, mine says seed pods. Some of you have something like turtle dove droppings. It's a word we don't quite know what it means in the Old Testament. It's either something to eat or to burn as fuel while you eat so you can cook your uh, donkey meat. Desperate times. Historians of the Civil War report that in Richmond, Virginia, in 1862, the price of bacon had risen astronomically uh, to some I guess you'd call it 1,000% to 2,000%, 10 to $20 a pound for bacon because of a union blockade. Suddenly, $4 gas maybe doesn't seem so bad. Samaria was out of food. And if the donkey meat price wasn't concerning enough, the next part of that story is unthinkable. Cannibalism cannibalism. The king of Israel was passing by when he hears this woman complaining. And the king, who was not a godly man by any stretch, Jotham, or Jothan, um, the, the king doesn't even want to hear her. If God doesn't help you, how can I help you? The thrashing floor, the wine press, it's sarcastic, it's, it's bitter, it's complaining, it's God's fault. But then he does go ahead and hear her complaint, and she tells this horrific story. Two women had agreed on the atrocity of eating their little children. They follow through on one, and the other backs out. If we try to picture a time so desperate, 
famine so severe, we wonder if these are God's people, Israel. Why did God allow it? And We don't have all those answers. We don't have all the answers for evil, but we know that really in a sinful world, evil causes evil. If we go back in the Old Testament scriptures some 600 years, we find God's warnings to Israel about times like these when Israel would be living in disobedience. In Leviticus, 600 years, it's Moses writing down the Old Testament law for the scriptures that the king of Israel at this time would have access to. And it said, if in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, it's God speaking, but continue to be hostile towards me, then in my anger, I will be hostile towards you. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. Might have sounded like an empty threat in good times. Now it had happened. And so this had been in their scripture for all these centuries and God had sent prophet after prophet. Every, every decade, it seemed, would have, have prophets coming to Israel and, and, and rebuking them for their disobedience and saying, if you, can, if you continue to worship the idols, if you continue in your immorality, if you, if you continue uh, persecuting the less fortunate, the, 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 the threats, the warnings of the Old Testament will come on you. And then Moses wrote it again. Deuteronomy, his second law, he repeated it before the nation went into Israel. And again, he was talking about, if when you get to the promised land and I bless you and all these things are going well, and then you turn against me in your heart, this is what's going to happen. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. And because of the suffering, your enemy will inflict you during the siege and you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord has given you. This was specifically spoken because it happened during the Babylonian captivity, but here, some years before, it's happening in Samaria. They had truly been warned. It should be really sobering for us as we, if you read the scriptures, if you read the Old Testament events, and I trust you do, and this isn't the only time you ever see these things, you begin to realize that God's warnings are real. And whether specific things happen, we see that there is a discipline of God. And, and so if there's something that you know that you are insisting on doing, that God in his word says, don't do that. Do we think we can escape the discipline of God? In the New Testament, Hebrews 12, it says God disciplines those he loves. In other words, that passage says how he treats us like a father because he cares so much about our holiness. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we take the word of God seriously? Because if we are casual about sin issues, it's because we are flippant about the word of God. And we don't really, we may say we believe it's the authoritative word of God, but how we respond determines what we really think. So the famine was severe. Verse 30, the king responds, and we find really that um, we, we find his true spiritual state. Because wouldn't this have been a great time for the king to say, oh, I've been so wrong. But that's not what he does. When the king, verse 30, when the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. 
As he went along the wall, the people looked, and there underneath, he had sackcloth on his body. May God, he said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, that's God's prophet, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now, Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders of the city were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, God was giving him intel again, don't you see how this murderer, the king, is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger, slash hitman, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? The plan was kill Elisha, and then the king would show up to make sure it was done. Didn't happen. While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. We can kind of picture then that the short door was shut, he was prevented from being killed, and the king shows up. The king said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And that becomes really the crux of this entire event in our scripture. Why should I wait on the Lord any longer? It tells us what Elisha had been telling him. Wait on the Lord. God will deliver the nation. But it was so painful. It was so painful, and instead of waiting on God, he became bitter towards God. Why should I wait on the Lord? This is from, from God. This is God's fault. So what's the king's plan? Kill the messenger. That's not going to change the famine. But he, he, was, he was so desperate, so volatile. He, it's like he's wanting to get rid of Elisha's voice because it seems he's ready to capitulate and surrender to the Arameans. And that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was that they would wait on him till God would deliver them. Back in verse 30, we see the king's response is to tear his robes. And interestingly, there's sackcloth underneath. King Joram's going for the layered look, it looks like. Sackcloth. Sackcloth was basically like a, a burlap sack. You'd wear sackcloth if you were in mourning. And in Israel particular, this cultural signal of, of wearing burlap or sackcloth should be a sign of spiritual repentance. And so we might go, oh, he was Repenting. Was he, was he repenting? He was wearing it underneath. It's like Joram had this idea, hearing the threats or the warnings of God through Elisha. Well, I'll, I'll kind of repent. <laughs> I'll wear sackcloth on the inside, but I don't want people to see me as a repentant, humble sinner. I'm going to keep my royal robes on. That's what people are going to see. So he wasn't repentant about his sin. He was pretending to be repentant about his sin. He was pretending to himself that he was repentant about his sin. Because only he knew what he was wearing underneath. This cannibalism thing pushed him emotionally over the brink, and now he 
rips it off. Not because he's truly repentant, because actually he's revealing his true spiritual state. He sends a hitman to kill God's man. There's a huge difference between regret and repentance. Regret just means that we know that we're facing consequences for our sin. That's just regret. Repentance. Whereas, whereas re regret is more about circumstances. Yeah, I realized I probably did this to myself. Okay. Repentance is Godward, where we humble ourselves before God and say, God, I have sinned against you, and it includes the transformation process. I am, repentance is about turning. I'm going to turn and go a different direction now. Actual change. Those who work in uh, jail ministry often will see regret, but much less true repentance turning. So the king curses Elisha. May God deal with me if I, if I don't kill him by the end of the day, but Elisha is kept safe by the power of God who, who informs him this guy's coming and the plot is foiled because the elders are there with him and they hold the door shut and, and it doesn't happen that indeed the king, the footsteps of the king, right? End of verse 32. Uh, the king comes and then this seems to be a statement of the king. It's kind of in parenthesis or italics maybe in some of your, verse, some of your translations at the end of verse, uh, uh, verse 33. But it's the king who has said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait any longer on him? Are you willing to wait on God through long seasons? Hard things test our obedience. Among other things that God must be doing, he is, he is testing whether we trust in his goodness or whether our view of him has switched to where we actually don't think he's good, he's bad. Because it doesn't pay, we tell ourselves. It doesn't pay to obey God. Things are awful. And so that can actually become an underlying excuse for sin. Well, it doesn't work to follow God. Job's wife, when all those things turned against Job, Job's wife told him, curse God and die. Which tells you what she essentially was doing. But it says Job would not. He would not blame God. He would not curse God. He would trust the goodness of God. Now, the book of Job is 30-some chapters of Job authentically questioning doubting God and never really getting the answers he wants and we don't usually get the answers that fully explain something on this side of heaven he questioned God but he would not turn against God and then God showed up rebuked him even for the questioning and then God did bless him again Are we willing to wait? Turn with me to, uh, keep, keep a marker here. We'll be back for the second half of the story. But turn to Psalm 27. Turn ahead quite a bit there to uh, Psalm 27, if you don't mind. King David experienced the pain of waiting on God. He's the one who wrote about it. In Psalm 27, the last two verses I'll put up on the screen, but we want to look at some of the rest. Basically, his conclusion is this. 
And this is, each translation kind of starts the verse a little bit different. But I would have lost heart, David said, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It was about his view of God. Wait on the Lord, he tells us. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Inner heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Does David know what he's talking about? Oh, does he ever? Timeline of his life basically is that very young he was approached by Samuel during Saul, King Saul's disobedience, and Samuel privately anointed him as king, probably as an older teen. And some years go by, some four or five years, in which David seems to be really flourishing. I mean, he's a musician. He's called to be a musician in the court of King Saul. He's a great warrior. He, he's the one who defeats Goliath. That makes him a national hero. That makes Saul really hate him because of jealousy. And so Saul begins to try to kill him. And he's fleeing from Saul until finally, some 14 chapters of Samuel later, when Saul dies in battle, well, technically he committed suicide in a losing battle, Finally, David is made king of Judah, just his home tribe, one of the twelve, and then uh, the other tribes eventually, seven years later, make him their king. So if we think about some of the waiting that he did, first of all, it boils down to some five to eight years in which David was running for his life. After God had promised, you will be the next king of Judah, King Saul in in the, in the court, threw a javelin at him three times, trying to kill him. Finally, David was convinced, I really think he's trying to kill me. <laughs> and he takes off, and he, he gathers together a band of, of, of kind of misfits, really, those who were in debt and those who were in trouble with the law. And, he, and he, he, they become like his little, his little army, his troops, and, and, and he, he runs around the wilderness, hiding from the troops of Saul that he sends to kill them. Sometimes he goes and spends time in the Philistine territory to just try to survive this thing. 14 chapters, the last half of uh, of 1 Samuel is just David trying to run for his life. And then finally, when Saul is dead, his tribe anoints him as king. But not everybody. In fact, a civil war ensues. And he goes through that for some seven years. Civil war until finally he is the king of all Israel. So it really has been almost 20 years since God says, I'm going to do this wonderful thing for you. When's it coming, God? (laughs) When's it coming? If you continue to look at Psalm 27, just just to highlight some of the things that he's been through, verse 2, evil men advance against me, enemies attack me. Verse 3, army besiege me, kind of like Elisha. Verse 5, in the day of trouble, Verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me, they didn't actually forsake him, but it describes how relational problems in the family become one of the biggest trials. Verse 11, oppressors. Verse 12, the desire of my foes, false witnesses, people are lying about me, violence. And then you come to verse 13 and 14 again. I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. 
Are you waiting on God? Is your soul waiting? Because, see, God is always doing soul work. We could say God is sure slow consistently unless we see that the greater value is that God is working on our soul. And so maybe that's why our health isn't getting better yet. God's unique soul work. It's not his work on somebody else. doesn't mean we're better or worse. It's got nothing necessarily to do with any of those things. He's just working on our soul. Children still aren't following the Lord. Anxieties still panic us. Marriage issues still frustrate you. Still a list of hurts. Might be current. Someone's trying to get you fired. Might be something past haunts you. What is it? It's anything. Wait, I say, on the Lord, because we're waiting on the goodness of God. Because we have a, we're de- God is developing a firm conviction that we believe He is good and working things for good. In chapter seven, now go back to uh, Kings, Second Kings seven. As we read the rest of the story, we find that God indeed does deliver his people. There were godly people in Samaria who didn't eat their children, who maybe bought donkeys' heads and shared them with their neighbors and prayed and let God be at work in their soul. And they will experience an incredible deliverance of God while others will not. So, we're, the chapter changes in the middle of this conversation with the king standing there saying, why should I wait on the Lord any longer? Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of flour will sell for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. By tomorrow, prices will be normal. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? There's no way this is going to happen. But Elisha said, This is what the Lord says. This wasn't Elisha's opinion. This is what God says. This, again, it, it pushes us back to the authority of of God's word because a prophet's word at that time was without a completed Bible that was like our word. A promise of God. We cannot mock what God has promised. We're going to struggle. We'll be discouraged. But will we reject his promises? Will we say obeying God isn't worth it? I don't believe his promises. Because As God works, we will experience either his grace in some way or the tragedy spiritually, a spiritual tragedy of not waiting on God. Verse 3. So this officer says, it's impossible. Could never happen. Sarcastic, unbelieving, mocking. Verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. Leprosy, horrific disease to face. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. 
So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. (laughs) They're very logically clear-thinking men. They live in permanent quarantine. Anyone who saw them shunned them. They were obligated to shout out that they were unclean, lest they infect someone. They lived a miserable life on the edge, literally of society on the edge. They couldn't be in town. And so they evaluated their choices. If we stay here, we die. If we go in the city, which was breaking our quarantine, then what's the use of trying that? Because there's no food there, we'll die. And if we, oh, but if we go out to the Arameans who are surrounding us, it's 50-50. We've got a chance. Maybe they'll kill us. Maybe they won't. So they head out that evening, verse 5. At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to, see, to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army so that they, the army, said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. (laughs) The Hittites were a nation to the north of both Aram and Israel. Egyptians were to the south. And the sound that God produced that scared them all away was from both the directions. He's like the original surround sound inventor. They heard it from both directions and assumed, oh, we're, and they 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 probably head out into the desert uh, to the east. Did God make this sound out of nothing? He could have. Or did he let them hear the angel armies? That kind of intrigues me since back in chapter 6, verse 14, we realized that Elijah and his servant were allowed to see the angel armies, the horses of fire, chariots of fire, the angelic host. Maybe this time God just lifted up the, let the audible go through. (laughs) And they realized that God was, they realized there was an enemy, not realizing it was actually God producing this. And they run. Either way, now the lepers know. Elisha already knew. And now the people of the city need to know that it's worth waiting on God. And that if we are waiting on God, it's no lack of supernatural resources. It's not because he can't. It's because it's not time. They fled. The lepers are the ones who stumble, if you will, into this miracle and so it won't be the, godly, the ungodly king who gets any credit for this. God's not really eager to share credit with any human politician. It will be the least likely people who discover the power of God, these untouchables with leprosy. In fact, in fact it is because of their leprosy that they became really the heroes of Israel. They became heroes because of their weakness, forcing them. Could God actually use your trial to be his source of your greatest blessing? 
Could he use your trial to be the source for you to be a greatest blessing to someone else? Certainly did for these men with leprosy. Verse 8, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank, imagine, finally. And carried away silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from there and hid them also. So they, they have a feast and then they start you know, their retirement plan. Then, verse 9, they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Like, God's going to discipline us. They have some fear of God. Let's go at once and report this to the palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, Hey, we went into the Aramean camp and not a man was found, not a sound of anyone. Only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. And the gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. So it goes all the way to the top to the king. We have good news. We... We have to tell others. There's got to be some kind of parallel here as we think of the good news that we know in this room. We know how you can be sure that the day you die, you go to heaven if you put your faith in Christ. Good news. It's, there's like an obligation. That that's what we have to be about. Let's go to the palace. Well, how does the palace respond? Verse 12. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, this is, this, this is interesting to, to, to realize what, what the king is thinking, this ungodly king. He said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the country, thinking we will surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. It's like he was incapable spiritually, unwilling to believe that God was good convinced of doom. Do you have a tendency to think the worst? It's not just like a kind of a laughing matter. Yeah, that's kind of... No, do we realize when negativity becomes a spiritual problem? That's what David, I think, was grappling with. He was... God wants you to trust his goodness. I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I had to believe that God is good. So wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, wait I say on the Lord. So if David the king, in Psalm 27, is an example of waiting on God's goodness, it's like this king is the poster child of negative thinking. I think we have to stop excusing our negative thinking because it can be a huge spiritual barrier in our lives. If we, if we won't sign our name to this, I believe in the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So I'm going to wait. on If we don't sign our name to that, how are we emotionally going to survive? And I'm really mean emotionally, spiritually, how are we going to survive the next pandemic? The next political thing? The next economy? The next war? Terrorist act? Or whatever personal 
trial hits our house. Unless we embrace the goodness of God, we, we won't persevere waiting on God. We'll do everything except that. And the downside is we won't enjoy life. We won't enjoy God. And we won't even sing worship songs, I'll bet. And we won't encourage our children. And we won't be a blessing to Christian friends around us in the church family. In fact, we'll probably become an emotional and spiritual drag on the people we love most unless we commit to learning and embracing the goodness of God. And we'll miss out on the gratitude and joy that God wants to give us in the midst of waiting. Do you realize how many psalms were written by David during these seasons of waiting? And he was singing. They're simultaneous. It's not wait till the thing's over, then sing. Israel's king doesn't die physically in this event that comes later, his judgment in chapter 13, but he died spiritually long before this. Fortunately, though, for him, and for, or should I say, really the whole city, these four lepers, good-hearted lepers, brought the news, and fortunately for Israel, there was one man with a little bit of faith, a little bit of reasonable faith in the king's inner circle. Verse 13. One of his officers answered, hearing the negative, we're not going out there, they're, they're just waiting to kill us. One of his officers announced, have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city, they'd eaten the rest, I guess, their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all these Israelites who are doomed. In other words, what's the worst that could happen? So let us send them to find out what happened. Let's at least try. So they selected two chariots with their horses, and the king went, sent, after, sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what's happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan River, and they found the whole road strewn with clothing and equipments the Aramans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out of the city and plundered the camp of the Aramans. So, guess what? A sale of flour sold for a shekel and two sales of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. They found so much food, prices plummeted. Everybody could afford food again. What if they had listened to the king? Stayed in the city, what, a week, two weeks? For one thing, I think the food would have pretty much spoiled. Don't think they left much behind in the way of refrigerators. And there wouldn't have been all this food and in a sense, this great victory God had given them would be mostly wasted. I wonder how many of God's miracles, if we can think of that way, have gone unclaimed. What great thing might God do? Showing his grace in some spiritual, physical, emotional way as we take courage and wait on the Lord. The king doesn't die, but someone else does. Verse 17. 
Now the king had put the officer on his arm, whose arm he leaned. That remember the guy who made these bad comments in verses one and two. He put him in charge of the gate because everybody's running out, right? And the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died, just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king. And, and then he rehearses the entire story. Let's read it. About this time, this is what the, Elisha had said. About this time tomorrow, a say of flour will sell for a shekel, two sayas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? And the man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And that is exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. The writer of the story rehearses it, this event. He rehearses it, I think, because he says, that's the tragedy. When we don't wait on God. Waiting on God is agonizingly painful. You know that. Waiting on God is spiritually essential. Does your family know you to be somebody who trusts God and expects you to expects to see the goodness of God in the long view? Does your spouse see you as someone who trusts God and expects to see his goodness? Do your Christian friends walk away from conversations with you more encouraged and confident that God has a good plan? Or are you more of a head-shaking doomsayer that leaves others more frightened about the future than when or before they talk to you. If we think it's naive to be positive when the world seems to be falling apart, you can only imagine that most of Samaria will surely have thought Elisha was crazy for believing in the goodness of God. So how do we wait on God. What do you do while you're waiting? You wait and you pray. In fact, is that the biggest purpose of the supposed delays that we charge God with? Is that we would develop this trust muscle of faith in his goodness. Back to a familiar friend Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Praying doesn't mean to live in a... I mean, uh, waiting does not mean living in a vacuum. It means developing our conversation with God. I know I sure find that I pray more when I'm worried more. Anybody else? Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a reason to that that cycle. And then what, verse 7? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding. This is that inner growth. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Because we have so many mind battles, we think so many lies. It will guard your minds in Christ Jesus because of the cross. Finally, brothers, then redirect your thoughts. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, there's a command. Think about those things. As someone has said, it's our stinking thinking. 
We are not focusing upon the sufficiency and the goodness of God. I mean, because we know the Word of God, I get it. We, we have every excuse to be negative because we know the world is not getting better. So we're right about that. It's getting worse. Study prophecy, you know it's not going in a good direction. That hasn't changed. But because we know the Word of God, if we're really embracing all of the Word of God, we should be nonetheless the most hopeful, the most life-giving, the most confident people on earth. In fact, we would be the only ones. And that's our mission. And so we can actually enjoy life while the world does what the world's going to do. And we stay focused on what God is doing. What is good? What's his plan? His plan is for your holiness. So don't, don't bail out and excuse sin and say, it doesn't matter, it doesn't pay. But rather we persevere in waiting on God. The end of, or rather one of the middle sections of Psalm 27 that we've taken time in today says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek. Here's my focus. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This is, these things are to draw us into this relationship. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high on a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his sacred tent. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. This is David's testimony. I will sing and make music to the Lord. There's only one place where there's peace and hope and joy, and it's the presence of God. So waiting on God is painful indeed, but it is spiritually essential. It's what God is doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are we're all familiar with our own version of what David went through or Samaria went through. We, we can look back if we have decades to see a path of trials and blessings and times when we got different grades in waiting on you. And I uh, pray, Lord, that we would uh, take seriously the uh, opportunity for spiritual growth that you are bringing to us in whatever is happening now and that we would not live in the past of regret nor the future of fear, but to embrace uh, your presence and goodness doing its work right now as we seek and serve and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.